pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. There is one line left open. You better grab it quickly if you like. We're going to start with JB and Carolyn and Ray. And you can be that fourth person. You know the number. 210-599-5555. On another beautiful Sunday morning. That temperature just keeps edging up a little bit, a little bit. But, hey, I'd sure rather have it 72 than 82 like it was here just, uh, what, two or three weeks ago. I just, uh, you know, it just feels good to walk out in these mornings. There's just a different feel to the air when you've had some good rain. Everything's green around you. And, uh, gosh, I hope you're, hope you're enjoying this start to fall as much as, uh, I am. And we are around here. Gosh, lots of folks out getting into vegetable gardening and herb gardening and fixing up their yards, put more houseplants inside to clean up the air. Yes, so many, so many good things to do right now, and I hope you're going to have a great Sunday. I appreciate you spending part of it with me, and uh, having said that, why don't we just go straight to the phone calls. JB's up first. Good morning, JB. Good morning, Bob. How are you today, sir? Oh, it's just a beautiful day. Looking forward to, looking forward to hopefully getting a lot done today. My list of things to do is always longer than there are hours in the day, but you know, you just, you just keep pecking away at it and go home tired and get up and do it, start it all over again tomorrow. So it's going to be a great Sunday in my book. Yes, sir. It's going to be a great day to work in the yard while listening to the garden show this morning. Well, appreciate that. First issue. I lost a tomato plant to powdery mildew. Now is, the soil affected by that mildew, and do it no. does it need to be treated? No, the the anything mildew related are actually spores floating through the air. When when they give you the pollen count, that includes mole spores, and sometimes they'll break it down and tell you that the great majority of what they're reporting is actually mole spores, and a heck of a lot of those are mildew. I still think it's a good idea to put out a little bit of whole ground cornmeal because. Of, it creates the beneficial fungus that wipes out most of the damaging fungi. And while I'm not really worried about mildew, you know, we've got a lot of other potential fungal pathogens out there in the soil. So I make it a point to put out a little bit of cornmeal, but uh, nothing that's directly going to be going to be related to the mildew issue. Okay, very well. Second issue, a peach tree that is has gone... Not cared for very well. It's just it's uh, overgrown. Like mine. <laughs> uh, uh, when and how much can I cut it back? Well, of course, first thing to do anytime a peach tree gets stressed, you may have some sprouts try to come off of the rootstock. So I would first check that base of the tree, and if you've got any growth coming out there, cut it off today. Um, beyond that. I like to wait until they drop their leaves in the fall. I feel like December, January is about the best time. And with a, a peach tree, a tree, peach tree that's already pretty much gotten its shape determined, uh, really we do more thinning than we do pruning. And you can go through and thin it pretty heavily. In fact, we try to go through and thin them out about 50% every year. It really increases 
the strength of the tree plus it uh, increases the quality of the peaches. So rather than going through and just doing a severe cutting back, I would go through and thin that tree out. But you can you can be pretty brutal about it. And of course, there's no reason to seal the wounds or do anything like that on a peach tree. Okay. Last issue. I pe- attempted several times now to germinate some Pride of Barbados seeds and have not had any success. Uh, could you offer any suggestions as to what I, I, I might do to increase my odds? Well, they are a very hard seed, as I'm sure you've noticed, and uh, scratching or scarifying the seed will really, really speed up germination. With Pride of Barbados, kind of like with the Mount Laurels and a lot of other really hard seeds, eventually, virtually every one of those seeds is going to sprout. But we can speed it up a great deal by the, the, the seeds are coated with a layer of wax. This is what Mother Nature does to protect them until the conditions are right for them to sprout and grow. Once that layer of wax gets a little bit abraded, a little bit broken down, then moisture can get into the seed, and this is what triggers the germination process. So we scratch the seeds, uh, call it scarifying to make it sound more scientific, but basically we're just scratching them. And if you're just doing a handful of them, you can use anything from a fingernail file to a piece of sandpaper to, you know, a little triangular file or something like that. And you're not sawing a hole in the side of the seed. You're just you're just roughing it up and kind of disrupting that layer of wax so the seed can absorb some moisture. If you're doing big quantities, uh, the professional guys, they'll throw them in a rock tumbler, throw in a little bit of powdered carborundum or something like that, and just tumble them for a few minutes. That's what they do with blue bonnet seed, too. But um, uh, scarifying the seed, then soaking it briefly, maybe 15 minutes. I like adding a little bit of garret juice to the solution. You do that, and you'll have a very high percentage of germination. Great. Thank you so much, Bob. You have a wonderful day. Well, I appreciate it. One last thing on uh, germinating the Pride of Barbados, of course, and I'm sure you know this, but everybody else listening will benefit. Uh, if you're going to sprout them this time of year, you're going to have to give them winter protection. Uh, Pride of Barbados will be totally cold-hardy here once it's gotten its roots established, but uh, not going to have time for that to happen. So by all means, get some started if you like. Grow them in four-inch pots for a while, then bump them up to gallon cans if you need to, but uh, it'll be spring before we can safely put them in the ground. Thank you so much, Bob. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Carolyn's up next. Uh, good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. I finally got in touch with you. I've tried for several weeks. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm glad you got but, through this morning. Right. Well, about the pride of Barbados, I heard him talking. I had a terrible time. I scarified them good, and I uh, had them in little four-inch pots. Only one of them uh, last year, uh, this past year, uh, uh came through but i had it outside and we got a lot of rain and and i understand that it drowned is what it did that they, they well, don't like to be have wet feet and and that and i finally had one come up out of all of them i planted they were all scarified they i mean anyway it is beautiful now but at least i have one and i was wondering i had some i threw in in the uh, flower bed uh just a couple of weeks ago and i'm i'm wondering you know the seeds that are in those seed pods hanging hanging down, they must they sprout after they fall on the ground, don't they? Eventually. 
eventually yeah. it may be a year okay. or two or three one thing i'd like oh. to clarify about the one thing i'd like to clear about the water clarify about the water issue though is that always remember that water doesn't hurt anything but lack yes. of oxygen hurts plants very much right, so right. Yeah. they can be absolutely saturated and it doesn't hurt them at all but if they stay saturated to the point yeah. that the water drives the oxygen out of the soil that's when it's damaging to the plants it's yeah uh, well know, that's what happened to, I had it yeah. out, and, and it rained a lot here in Fort Worth. I mean, a lot. And so the other one, I, I babied more, and and it's it's beautiful, finally. And, and Okay. My big pr- problem is the Brussels sprouts. I, uh, uh, you said I called you a couple of months ago, uh, and mm-hmm. you said to uh, sprout them, you know, uh, in the summer and then plant them in the fall. Uh, right. I've got them up. In, I had them in four-inch pots. And uh, then I put them, uh, I transferred them to a, a one gallon because uh, the problem here is it's so it's been so hot they kind of wilt during the day and I take them in the air conditioning at night and they're just all perky in the morning so I know they <laughs> right. like cold weather yeah right but it's time to get them out of the pot they're um, they are about eight inches tall some of them. And uh-huh. what I've read, and of course the internet isn't always right, it says to plant them uh, deep uh, to the to the bottom leaf, and that's what I was going to ask you about because I don't want to do anything wrong. Well, you know, it doesn't benefit to plant them deeper. It helps hold them up, but they're not going to grow roots out of the stem. Uh, like a tomato plant does. Tomato plant, if you plant it six inches deep, yeah. it will form new roots all the way up to sure. the soil. The on sure. all of the coal family plants, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, th- or things like that, it doesn't hurt them to be buried more deeply. They have a sort of a waxy stem, and they have a little bit different stem structure than a tree or a shrub would. So we don't worry about planting them a little bit deeper. In but uh, the benefits are just really to stabilize them and it certainly doesn't hurt anything but neither is it mandatory it's totally up to you uh, brussels sprouts will form you know a very strong plant they have leaves fairly low to the ground and they become self-supporting fairly quickly and then of course what we eat with the little uh, growths that form on on what amounts to their bloom spike and that's not going to happen till mid-spring so yeah i think it's probably uh fort worth or San Antonio or Hill Country, we're probably through the hottest of our weather, and those Brussels sprouts would be much happier in the garden. So go ahead and you know plant them at your convenience, and uh, don't worry if you get them buried a little bit deeper. You don't really have to, unless you think the plants are just uh, will will benefit from the support. But uh, good question. Okay, I do get. I, I did say to stake them that that would help you know, help them grow, keep from falling down. And so I do have some stakes here that I was going to tie them to because they do have a very, very thin stem now. I mean, yeah. it's not thick at all. And it, so it will thicken up and, uh, you know, stakes, eh, probably a good idea. Uh, I would use it more to prop them up. I, if you tie them up, you're eventually going to have to cut that tie because sure, that Brussels sure. sprout stem will get as big around as your thumb, and you certainly don't want to girdle it with whatever you're tying. But if you, sure. want, if you want to tie them up temporarily, okay. uh, you can certainly okay. do so. Okay, and I have a garden, and it's it's all along my back fence. It's pretty wide, probably 10 foot wider in some spots. 
And uh, my uh, behind me, I guess the ground slopes a little. You can hardly see that it slopes, but boy, the rains that we got washed all the soil out, and I'm having compost put in. And uh, I wondered what a good plant would be to have along my back fence to keep, you know, to, with roots that would keep the uh, soil from washing back down and over my, you know, over my landscape rocks and all I that. Uh, and in Fort, in Fort Worth, I can't think of a better plant than monkey grass. <laughs> I have well, I've got liriope. Yeah, yeah, I've got liriope everywhere. Is, yeah, monkey grass is even denser with its root system. And uh, I know where my aunt and uncle lived in Dallas, they were on a slope and had exactly the same issue. And we just planted a, about a 30-foot-long stretch of monkey grass there. And that just totally stopped the erosion problem. Well, and, uh, what kind of monkey grass? Because I've had monkey grass years ago that's like a weed that you can't get rid of. It just keeps getting wider and wider. I want something... <laughs> You know, like the liriope, that it it does mm-hmm. stay in a in a clump. Mm-hmm. Well, it you know both of them will gradually spread. Um, uh, they're they're closely related. They're both in the lily family, actually. And if you'd rather plant liriope, you can certainly do that. But um, and and again, we're more interested in this uh, root system than in the top of the plant. If correct, you wanted correct. to plant the the dwarf mondo or the dwarf monkey grass, it's not going to spread as much as the bigger form. But uh, bigger form is, you know, you you've got a long term memory, and eventually it does make a big patch, but it doesn't happen overnight. And uh, it's, you know, with sharpshooter, you can certainly control it. It's not like nutsedge or something like that. It just becomes an invasive mm-hmm. weed. Uh, mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to do a planting of it along the fence and then put a little bit of steel edging or something like that, uh, two, three inches in the ground, you'll totally contain it. So I, I would not consider it, you know, invasive in a bad way, but if you want a little bit... Uh, less you could look at the dwarf mondo or the dwarf monkey grass, and it, it spreads. Yeah, I, it grows I had dwarf slowly. mondo in Bernie when I lived in mm-hmm. Bernie. I had the dwarf mondo. It takes a long time to fill in. It took a long time to fill in. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so we're stuck between uh, you know, do we want something that's going to grow slowly and not become an issue, or do we want something that's uh, right. going to give us a lot of success tomorrow, and then maybe five years from now we're thinking, gee, it's kind of gotten a little bit too big. I, I would still, if it were mine, I, I've never found it that difficult to control. And it's, it's not like a bamboo. It doesn't, you know, shoot out 10 feet and then sprout up. It's just going to be a slowly expanding clump. So uh, if it's important to hold the soil, I, you're going to have to go to a little trouble with whatever you plant. Now, you could mm-hmm. always plant something like agapanthus. You could plant some of the lilies, the crinums, things like that, the uh, so-called mm-hmm. Peruvian daffodil, hymenocallus. Uh, those are going to occupy substantially more space along that fence, but those are also things that have big fleshy roots that are going to do a pretty good job of holding the soil. But if I wanted just a, a barrier, almost like terracing, I, I still don't think of anything much better than monkey grass, Ophiopogon japonicum. Are there different types of monkey grass? Uh, uh, there are. There are. There are different types of Ophiopogon. The the ones that are 
typically called monkey grass or just the real narrow-leaved forms. Uh, there's mm-hmm. some sedges, too, that you might look at. Uh, I think you'll find most of them will be cold-hardy in Fort Worth. Howard Garrett's really gotten into sedges. In fact, we provided them with a bunch of different ones, but there's a variegated sedge that's quite attractive. There are several green and blue-green and gray sedges, and you can certainly look at those. They uh, they, they also would, would thicken up and... Uh, being really tough, hardy, many of them native plants, uh, those those would be another another option. Okay, okay, and I have one more question. Uh, I have a, a holly in the uh, around my front in the front flower bed. I widened it when I bought this house, and and the holly's been doing fine. One of them last year, uh, I noticed it started made tons of berries like it's trying to save itself or something and and it's full of berries all summer and it's just getting you know losing limbs and getting yellower and uh i tried the super thrive that that doesn't seem to have helped it i think i'm going to lose the plant it's in between two two hollies that aren't affected and uh i wondered uh what i could replace that with because i think i'm going to lose it and there's going to be a big gap in the flower front flower bed you know, around my house. Do you have something that would be, um, that I could stick in between there? I do, I, I don't have just holly. I have other mm-hmm. things, to, you know, a couple of other things too. Uh, well, but, before you before you give up on that, I would get down and dig away or wash around the base of the plant. I don't think it's a disease. I think it's something physical. You could have a girdling root. You could have something like oh. that that might potentially be correctable before you, oh, okay. you give up on it. I'd, I'd look okay. at the base first and see if you yeah. can determine well, what might be causing the problem. If you want okay. to you know, plant something else in there that would be a nice complement, especially where you are up there. Spirea or mm-hmm. bridal wreath is going to be a beautiful plant, give you lots and lots of white flowers in the spring. Um, you could plant and does it, it get too of, big? Does it get real big? It gets four to six feet tall. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. you know it is certainly controllable. It's uh, it is going to be very much in keeping in size with uh, you know with the holly that you would have. I'm presuming as Foster's or Burford or one of those. But it uh, is to Burford. Me, that, mm-hmm. Yeah, that to me something like one of the spireas would be absolutely beautiful. Um, you could plant flowering quince in there. It's going to be a different appearance. But going along with the hollies, I, I think I, I would look at the white spirea, what they commonly call bridal wreath. I think would be a very good. Okay, option. I've got that. Okay, I wrote. Okay, I wrote that down. But you know, I know that the the roots are all exposed, and uh, on these. But uh, I'll look and check to see if there's a girdling root there. I guess that's what I need to do then. Uh, that's right? what I would sure suggest. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, because the roots roots are exposed on the hollies. They they've yeah. been exposed for a long time, but yeah. this well, one holly that it didn't. Seems to, didn't, didn't, doesn't mean it didn't stay in a small pot for too long, long time before you got it and, in effect, developed a, right. you know, a, a bad system. And that's why, you know, when, when I'm planting shrubs, when I take them out of the pot, I'm going to slice all the way down one side of the root ball just in case. But sometimes, you know, most of these plants are started out a little something called rose pot that's about two and a quarter inches wide. And sometimes they they develop in the circling, girdling roots at a very early age. But uh, I'd, I'd sure before I give up and pull it out or something, uh, that's what I would check for because I don't think it's a disease issue. I think it's something physical, and it may be something okay. that is correctable. 
Okay, I do cut down. I don't know if I did when I planted these, but anything I've planted in the past 10 years, I've cut down. You know, these plants are 10 years old now. And so um, I didn't know if the hollies had a had a, a, a life of their own or what. what. But uh, I sure will check for a girdling root. The, all, things, all things have a lifespan, but it's certainly more than 10 years. Carolyn, you get out and have a very good Sunday. Okay. I'm going to do a break here. And uh, let's see, we'll be back in just a moment. And I get to talk to you for a minute about Green Grow Organics. Our good friends, uh, Sam Sitterly and his company that are out there to help you. And, uh, you know, they, they can also do things like checking the base of plants, checking to see if you've got issues with them. They do use a lot of compost tea to correct soil issues. They always use natural products. You may have, uh, if you have hollies, you may have some lingering insect problem you didn't know about, scale or something like that. Well, Sam and his guys will identify it and take care of it, and they always use organic products. They never use anything toxic. And the nice thing, too, there's no long-term contract. They are there to help you with the fertilizing, the compost tea, insect and disease control, things like that. And uh, always organically, always with natural products, and they certainly know the business. Sam's been at this for almost 30 years. In fact, it may be 30 years now, helping folks all over San Antonio and the Hill Country. It's real easy. I'd suggest you go to his website, which is Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. And uh, when you're ready, just give him a call. Set up a consultation. He will look things over at no charge. You can do it uh, following all the COVID guidelines. You can do it face-to-face, whatever works for you. He'll tell you what he sees that could be doing better. He'll suggest a course of action, and then you decide how much of the work you want to do and how much you want him to do. It's Sam Sitterly. It's Green Grow Organics. And... Uh, just check them out. Like say, greengroworganics.com. When you're ready to give them a call, uh, just it's 210-275-8200. That's Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. It should be Ray and Liz and Rose and Jan. And Ray is up first. Good morning, Ray. Yes, good morning, Bob. Uh, sir. Find some cool, cooler weather to be outside and do more. <laughs> it is pretty, yes, sir. Uh, it, yeah, I had a couple of questions. One, you pretty much answered with uh, the monkey grass the discussion you had with the uh, previous call. Yes, um, I had planted some monkey grass back in March, and I was just wanted to see where it was at. Uh, but I think you answered my questions uh, in the, the discussion of the monkey grass. Uh, it just takes a long time to get filled in, right? It takes a little while. Now, you can certainly speed it up with good fertilizers. If you're wanting it to grow real quickly, use a good liquid product like Hasbro Plant or something like that. If you don't want to feed as often, just about four times a year with any of the good dry granular organics would be good. But, uh, it, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's going to spend its first year really getting its roots established, and then it will fill in pretty quickly. Like I say, it's not, it's not, it doesn't spread invasively. It's not like bamboo but once it gets a foothold uh you'll notice plenty of good growth this next spring well yes we'll be looking forward to it um the other question was on, on cornmeal and you had uh, again some, the first caller i guess was also had some question about cornmeal but uh, i've applied cornmeal uh, on the lawn because i had some fungus problems yes, uh, and then rain and i was wondering what effect the rain would have on it do i have to be applied or 
No, Again? no. As a matter of fact, the rain's a good thing, but of course, the the magic is not the cornmeal itself. It's the beneficial fungus called trichoderma, which grows on the cornmeal, and that rain just speeded that up and activated it. The rain was a good thing, and absolutely no reason to think about reapplying. It's uh, it's it's there. It's working. It's doing its job, and and like I say, rain only made things better. Okay, and when uh, should I apply some compost in some areas that? Uh I, I, I need to, I guess, because they left the color in the yard. When you feel like the temperatures are pretty much out of the 90s, when we're not likely to get up in the 90s anymore, I don't have a crystal ball, man. If if we could accurately forecast the weather, would would do a lot better than the clouds on radio and TV. But um, yeah. I usually, I usually we're totally safe by the first of October. I'm thinking probably next week. Uh, if we do get hot again, it's not likely to stay hot. So uh, yeah. I think we're just in the pretty much. Uh, if the weather feels good to you, if it feels comfortable to me, I, I try to think of it as exercise, not work. But uh, uh, you can do it almost any time. I think now, right? Okay. Well, down in the valley, I mean, we get into October, it's still 90. So I guess it's yeah. probably. Well, I didn't realize you were in the valley. Yes, sir. If you're in the valley, I'm going to hold off until uh, uh, mid to late October, early November. Yeah, I have many friends in McAllen for many years. So, y'all are y'all are a little more tropical than we are in the Hill Country. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Those are the questions I have today. Well, that's uh, good to talk to you and uh, call anytime we can help. Thank you. All right, next up is going to be Liz. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I hope you're doing the same. Well, I'm so-so kind of old and having joint problems, but that's okay. Trying to hang in there. Well, keep moving them. That's what keeps them going. I had an old friend up in Wyoming <laughs> yeah. used to say, we don't we don't stop walking because we grow old. We grow old because we stop walking. So exactly. do what you can. Right. How can yes, I help this morning? Yes. Well, I'm not very good at plants and all that because uh, I planted some perennials uh-huh. in uh, May, and uh, I try to water them every other day when I planted them at the beginning, but uh-huh. they still don't seem to be doing very good. They uh, get just morning sun a little bit, and then the shade hits them. So I don't know if that's what's wrong or, or what, what am I doing what? wrong. What kind of perennials did you plant, Liz? I planted the the coneflower and the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, Echinacea. And the Coropius. Coriopsis? Coriopsis, yes. Uh-huh. Okay. And I don't know what, what I'm doing wrong, but I try to water them every other day because I figured, well, maybe they're drying up because they did look like they were drying up. But they still well, don't look like they're doing good, even though I water them. Are you fertilizing? No. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know that's that like your, Papa, but that, plants. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like your puppy dog's not going to grow too well unless you feed it. So uh, those plants oh, okay. are just hungry. Now, Coreopsis and, uh, and the Echinacea, the coneflower, are both good perennials. They both like it, you know, at least half a day of sun. So they, they're, they're happy in the mm. sun. But... Uh, I would either get some dry granular fertilizer like Medina or Nature's Creation or Maestro, same sort of thing you put on the grass. If you want to see a little uh-huh. faster results, get a good liquid fertilizer. Um, Medina makes a couple of good liquids. One of them is called Has to Grow Plant. The other is called uh, 
Uh, it's just, I believe they just call it their uh, fish supplement, liquid fish supplement. But uh, start trying to uh, put some of that on those uh, plants every two to four weeks, and uh, uh-huh. that'll really make a difference. It'll make them more cold-hardy for the winter months, and uh, it will certainly help them to do better and grow. They they came to you having been fertilized from you know, the nursery, but they used up all that nutrition within the first few weeks. So they're just hungry. They just uh, they uh, just need okay. some fertilizer to perk up and look better for you. But just try to do it as soon as possible so they don't completely die. Absolutely. Do it. And uh, uh, <laughs> again, think of it just like you would a pet. Uh, they need to eat regularly if they're going to do their best. And uh, so right. that's what you're doing. And I, I would stay with an organic fertilizer because you'll never have to worry about burning with it. Uh, and they are longer lasting. They stay in the soil without washing away. So uh, uh, uh-huh. both of those are good, hardy plants. So I think when you start fertilizing them, they're going to look a whole lot better for you. So it still wouldn't matter that they have a little bit of sun in the morning and then shade? The more sun, the better. At this point, I wouldn't shock them by transplanting them. Now, next spring, once they've had a chance to store some nutrients and all, they might do better, especially the echinacea. Well, actually, both of them, if you get them out where they get at least half a day of sun. Mine are growing in full sun. Mine's going to get sun all day long, and uh, they just thrive in that. So at some Mm -hmm. point, I think I would probably move them to a sunnier area. But right now, I just Mm -hmm. want to get them a little healthier first, and that's what your fertilizer will do. Think about February or March. That would be a good time to move them out to the sunnier spot. Okay, so uh, what kind of uh, plants can I plant then that are kind of colorful and attract hummingbirds and uh, butterflies that are in, like I said, a little bit of sun in the morning and then shade? What can I plant uh, There's, for now? Yeah, there, there are a number of plants. There's a plant called shrimp plant, Justicia, which uh, the hummingbirds love and butterflies love, and it will grow in partial shade. There are uh, there are a lot of different kinds of salvias. Many salvias need some, but there are also some shade-loving ones. Uh, there's one called eyelash sage. There's another one called smooth leaf sage. There's another called tropical sage. All of those uh, grow and bloom beautifully in a shady spot, and uh, they're they're all mm-hmm. attractive to the hummingbirds and the and the butterflies. Mm-hmm. There Do is they a come plant. back? They Do they come back every year? They they pretty much are evergreen unless it's very cold. Uh, and yes, mm-hmm. they come back if they freeze down. They come they right come back, back out. Yeah, because being that I'm up in years, you know, it's hard for me to plant something and then have to replant again every year. That's why I, I was asking. I understand. Well, you yeah. just, you know, they're going to want some fertilizer along with, uh, you know, regular watering. You don't want to keep the soil too terribly wet. Uh, one other mm-hmm. that I would mention to you that uh, blooms every fall, it's called fire spike, properly called odontonema. That's one that's fire just spike? getting, yeah, fire spike, not fire bush, but fire spike. And uh, oh, it spike. blooms every fall, has uh, red flowers, tubular red flowers. And uh, really pretty. It freezes back uh, to some extent in the winter, but it always comes back out. And uh, it will mm-hmm. grow even in a very shady spot. Oh, okay. One last question. Uh, when can you trim those uh, green bushes that are just green? Most of them are best trimmed in late winter or early spring, about the second week of February. Anytime after Valentine's Day is the time that I try to do most of the pruning on those. After Valentine's, okay. Yeah. 
Okay, so then all these plants that you mentioned, as as far as when you plant them, do you water them every day at the beginning or every other day, or how do you, you figure you that out? Them, you water them very thoroughly, and then you feel the soil. When the soils dry up on top, then it's time to water again. It's impossible to say whether it be every other day, every day, every third day, because the cooler mm-hmm. it is, the less they'll need water. The sunnier it is, the more they'll need water. Uh, if it's windy, it'll dry them out faster, so we, we really can't water by the calendar. We just have to water oh, okay. thoroughly when we water and then feel the soil. When that first knuckle deep feels dry, then it's time to water them thoroughly again. It, of course, will be less often in the fall than it would be in the summer months, but just just water thoroughly when you water and feel that soil, and uh, and they'll mm-hmm. appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate your help. Always a pleasure, Liz. Thank you for the call. Uh-huh. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, Rose and Jan are going to be my next callers. But first of all, I want to talk about Rhonda's Nature's Way. And you know, it doesn't really make any difference whether you're up in years or whether you're young. Your body's going to benefit from proper nutrition, from pop proper supplements and taking care of that body is what's going to keep you going for a long long time but it's it's more than that it's just feeling good you just enjoy life more it's fun to have energy it's fun to be able to pretty much get out and do whatever you want to do i don't know anyone that can help you accomplish that better than Rhonda over at Rhonda's nature's way she and her family and staff have for many many years been helping people with good supplements with good vitamins with treatments such as reflexology, such as the red light therapy, the beamer light therapy, all these things are so good for the body. And things that will help your digestive system, probiotics for instance, uh, they'll just make you feel better. She's got things that will help with joint pain, natural things. I love that uh, trauma comfrey cream. It's just absolutely wonderful for so many aches and pains. Rhonda just has so many good things in both of her stores. And if you're very active, you're out in the heat a lot like I am. I love the uh, the electrolyte uh, powder that she has called Ultima. I've used that for quite a long time now and let me tell you what, it really helps you feel good, maintain your energy and stay healthy and hydrated when you're out in the sun. Just mixed with uh, with whatever water source you use. So much more than just water. When, when you're out working in the sun in hot weather, you need more than water. You need the electrolytes to keep your potassium and sodium and all balanced in your body. Rhonda can help you with with all that and her advice well her advice is always free and is always based on years and years of quality experience you just need to get by and see them they're closed on sundays open the other six days south side stores over on southwest military north side store the one that i visit regularly they're in the shopping center to the corner of i-10 in callahan that's Rhonda's nature's way South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning in South Texas in the Hill Country and I'm sure pretty much across the state of Texas. I'm Bob Webster and I enjoy talking gardening with you and Rose is next in line. Good morning, Rose. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, My my question is... uh, I just cut up and uh, was going to pull out a tomato plant because uh, most of the tomatoes are are splitting apart. Okay. And either I left them too long in the in the plant uh, for them to ripen, 
or I'm doing something wrong. And I figured no, no, since you're, you're not doing you're not doing anything at all wrong, Rose. What happened is what happened just about everybody's tomato seed this past week with all the rain. When we're in warm weather, the tomato skins toughen, and then when they get a whole bunch of water, uh, they they just they swell, they split. That's what makes them cracks, and there's not really a thing you can do about it. And I think you just about anybody growing tomatoes you talk to, uh, they will have had a, a bunch of fruit split, and it was all due to the rain. It wasn't due to anything that you did or didn't do, unless you could have gone out and held an umbrella over them for four days, which I don't think would be too practical, but uh, that splitting is just is just due to having good rains after having been dry for a while, and uh, uh, doesn't mean the next ones will split. And you certainly didn't do anything wrong. Well, unfortunately, on the one I decided to cut up and and pull out of the pod because I have them in pods, uh-huh. um, I pulled out of over thirty five little tomatoes, anywhere from marble size <laughs> to two inch tomatoes. Which the deer are going to love the ones I'll be tossing out. Well, you can make a little chow chow or hot sauce. Green tomatoes, (laughs) there's still things you can do with the green tomatoes. They're they're more flavorful when they're ripe, but uh, when they're good and ripe. uh, You don't need to throw them away. You you can make some chow chow or something with them and be pretty good. Even the small ones that really haven't grown? Right. Oh well, now, I'm not um, much. I'm not the greatest cook in the world, but I know good salsa, and uh, and people do a lot of things with green tomatoes uh, in making, you know, hot sauce and uh, various yes, uh, pico uh-huh. things like that. Okay, uh, I had thought of maybe uh, getting some foil paper and laying it on my patio table and let the sun. Uh, ripen them. Uh, if they're, if they're, yeah, if they're full size, that will work. But if they're little ones, uh, they are not going to ripen. They're just gonna they're not going to ripen. Okay. No, but the, the and, big ones uh, are almost ready. They you can ripen them. Uh, you can ripen them in a windowsill. They don't have to be outside. But anything that's uh, a ways away from ripening, you need to use them uh, with whatever recipe for green tomatoes you have. Okay. My next question is: I have three. I had well now to uh, plants and would you say that it's okay for me to leave them on the plant and and let them uh, on those that are already there uh let them yeah. ripe on the plant yeah. even though i planted them i planted them late in the season yeah. uh my two sons built me a a upright flower bed because of the previous caller that said that yeah i can't stoop down on the ground but sure. uh i planted no, them I... very late those that are in the in the um, in the flower beds but uh yeah, would they, you they, advise... they will do fine i i would leave them on the plants they're always going to improve in flavor they're always going to better ripen better on the plant now sometimes when we get right up to freezing weather which isn't anytime soon when we get up to freezing weather, we have to pick them and bring them inside so they don't freeze. But at this point, oh. as long as your tomatoes still have green foliage, uh, the tomatoes that are on the plant, they're going to ripen and be a lot better flavor than trying to pick them and ripen them inside. So, uh, yeah, I just would uh, I'd continue to water and fertilize and do all the things you would normally do. You're probably not going to have to water for a few more days, mine at least. Uh, my soil is still pretty moist, but uh, they'll do much better on the plant than if you pick them off. 
Okay. Um, another question is, I have about four different types of pepper plants, mm-hmm. and uh, how long would you say that uh, since we're I live out in the country, and we we have a water well, and mm-hmm. I'm very careful as to how much water I use, I and I don't, feeling. and I don't want to uh, be, you might say, wasting water mm-hmm. on plants that will not produce anymore. And on this pepper plants, right now because of the rain, they are full of of flowers. Yeah, so and the peppers long- will go on. Yeah, peppers will go on producing right up until it freezes. They won't they won't the peppers will not grow as quickly. But many times some of our best peppers are in the fall. So they are very definitely worth the water and uh you know, peppers don't require a heck of a lot of water, but uh they are very definitely worth keeping. They they don't have many problems, and uh, especially things like bell peppers. Their peppers themselves are going to be bigger. Um, you will notice that most peppers, as the days get shorter, they tend to ripen. They tend to turn red more quickly. And when that happens, the flavor doesn't change, but they lose some of the texture. But uh, I'm not pulling up any of my peppers. They they will stay up until they freeze, and that's the... The serranos, the uh, I, I grow, I grow a lot of different kinds of peppers, but fall is yes, a great well, time for peppers. I have poblanos and serranos and jalapenos and habaneros, and the habaneros are just starting to turn orange. Uh-huh. Um, but it's they're full. I mean, the plant is about four feet high, and it's full yeah. of, of peppers right yeah. now. I guess the, it, the rain helped a lot. Absolutely. And, uh, you keep enjoying them. Next year, plant some shishitos if you want a little smaller plant and a really delicious pepper. But no, uh, water them. Continue to put a little fertilizer on them, and they'll give you lots more lots more production between now and freezing weather. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, I'm not okay. like uh, I'm not like a gardener. A professional. <laughs> well, a sounds to me like you're doing pretty well. You just call me whenever you have questions, Rose, and we'll always do our very best to help you. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. You have a good Thank day. You. God bless you. you. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening and straight back to those phone lines. Uh, it's going to be Jan, Jeff, Robert, and Thomas. Jan's first. Good morning, Jan. Bob, I was uh, calling about my cucumber plants. Okay. They were they were looking really good, and then the leaves got droopy, so I was waiting to see if they needed water, but they didn't. But they have little black spots all over the back of the leaves, tiny little black spots. Are they part of the leaf, or does it look like a little insect of some sort? It looks like probably an insect, and it's on all of them, not just like... I, I did spray with some Dawn and water. Okay. Soap. Yeah, um... That's probably all you need to do. I would have probably used spinosad soap. I think it's a little more effective. And uh, Dawn, sometimes, I don't know what they put in there, but I've seen plants damaged a little bit by it. Right now, your cucumbers just need sun more than anything else. If you haven't fed recently, I'd, you know, give them a good look at plant food like has to grow or something like that. But uh, um, this is, you know, this is the best weather we've had for cucumbers in a couple of months. So I, keep I know, they were doing them. so well. 
Yeah, I, uh, I they probably stayed a little too wet over the because I think I had rain to report like four or five days in a row last week. But at this point, they'll almost certainly come out, and you should get lots of cucumbers through the rest of the fall. But um, I doubt, you know, you probably looked at a few aphids, and they're a nuisance, but they're not especially damaging. So at this point, I'm just going to fertilize water when they're dry and knuckle deep and enjoy yeah, they have a lot of blooms on them. They don't do they? Yeah. Are they like squash? Do they get the male blooms first? They do. They do okay. the sex. The uh, blooms you get male and female blooms on the same plant, but the blooms are very definitely different. You can always tell the female flower it has what looks like a little miniature cucumber right behind the flower itself. But uh, right. keep an eye out if you don't feel like you have bees and insects pollinating them. You probably need to get a little paintbrush and do some of the pollinating yourself just to be sure you continue to get cucumbers. But yeah, we've got you know two three months time left to grow lots of cucumbers. Right, and they will they get if they if it is aphids will they get on my tomato plants? Um, possibly. I didn't see them on there, but yeah, maybe but it's, they're happy where I, they are. Yeah, again, they're more of a nuisance than a real problem, so I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, uh, one more question is: I know I've heard different um, orange trees, if you would, or mandarins, of uh, miho, iho, and all. Which one do you <laughs> think is the best? <laughs> well, of the, you know, let's call them satsumas or tangerines. Yeah, or, that's they, the name do, they go by a lot of different ones. But uh, I think probably the juiciest, tastiest ones with the fewest seeds, Miho, M-I-H-O is one, Seto, S-E-T-O is one. Uh, there's another uh, one called Kimbro. Uh, there is, uh, oh golly, there, there are quite a few of them, but probably Miho, Sito, and Kimbro are going to be my top three choices for true uh, tangerines. If you, uh, you know, if you want kumquats, uh, there are sweet kumquats and sour kumquats, and there's one called Miwa, M-E-I-W-A, is one of the best sweet kumquats. And unlike the, uh, the tangerines do pretty much all their blooming in their spring and all their production in the fall, but if you like a small citrus, if you've ever grown the kumquats, I mean, you eat them peel and all, but they can bloom, they can set fruit any time of the year, and if you're thinking of planting additional citrus, uh, it might be a good one, but be sure you know whether you're getting sweet or sour and i think miwa is the best of the sweet kumquats and i'm sure that include that one in the in the possible group okay if you have a peach tree is it best to have two of them absolutely yeah peaches uh they'll produce some but they produce many more uh with two trees okay all right thank you for your help this morning bob it's always a pleasure. Be sure you're choosing a peach tree, you know, for your chill zone. You want to get one. We have to have them. Peach trees are real picky about how much weather they have, 45 degrees or below. If you have too little, they'll bloom too early. If you don't have enough, they won't bloom at all. So talk to somebody like Phanix or one of your good nurseries around that can help you make a good selection. And above all, get out and enjoy this beautiful day, Jan. And uh, everybody else, we'll be right back. We're right up to news time. Be Jeff and Robert and Thomas after the news. This is KTSA Radio in San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. Don't dial right this second, though, because Jeff and Robert, Thomas and Martha all got in front of you. But we'll have a we'll have a line available for you pretty shortly. And let's just keep going there. Uh, Jeff's up next. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? 
I'm doing well. It's a beautiful morning out there. Oh, yes, it is. Well, I've got um, two, possibly three questions. First okay. one is, you know, we planted St. Augustine, oh, you know, sod uh, about end of March, 1st of April. About okay. half the yard did half the yard did really well. We prepared everything so that we could put it down and hopefully not have any problems. But the other half of the yard um, is like when the severe heat came, it was like Mm -hmm. it all died. And even though it got watered and had uh, some shade, um, the yard that was in full sun and, (laughs) and still watered that it's, thriving the other side not doing so well so we wondered okay did that just completely die out or um, will it come back next spring well if you'd have to look at the runners to tell if the runners are brown and you know kind of dry and crispy looking that's not a good sign if it's the leaf Mm -hmm. blades that have turned brown and the runners remain green that it will come out without any problem um assuming that it you know got the water nutrition it needs it's possible that you could have gotten one of the fungal diseases that sometimes hit Mm -hmm. in the summer months always seem to be a problem with fairly newly planted grass because i think the grass is pushed so hard with uh, synthetic nitrogen fertilizers I would probably treat the, in fact, I'd probably treat the whole yard with whole ground cornmeal. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not expensive, and you're going to put on roughly 10 pounds per thousand square feet. Um, mm-hmm. I wish we'd talked earlier because you can stop take all patch, you can stop. Uh, uh, most all the fungal diseases, the cornmeal growth is trichoderma fungus, which then takes out the damaging mm-hmm. fungus. So it's uh, it's hard to say how much, how bad the damage was. Many times if it's brown patch, uh, it comes back fairly quickly. If it's take-all patch, some of the grass actually dies. But I think it's worth mm-hmm. treating and uh, just watch and see how it does. If you want to get down on your hands and knees and look carefully at the runners themselves, so long as you okay. see some green there, then it will almost certainly come back. Okay. All right. The other another question is regarding we've got a corner in our at our in our front yard where uh, two corners of the house come together, but it's um, very deep shade at that particular mm-hmm. junction, okay. and we we're trying to think of a, a plant that we could possibly put in there that might flower or at least stay green. <laughs> So <laughs> say saying green is easy. Flowering is a little bit more of a challenge, but um uh there are things like aspidistra, there's holly fern, if you want a bigger shrub, gold dust acuba or green acuba. Those are all, you know, real good plants if you were to drive by you know, our nursery faces mm-hmm. north. The flower bed on the front of the building gets no sun. The same gold dust cuba we planted 39 years ago is still out there thriving. The same aspidistra, mm-hmm. the same holly fern. If you want to get some color through the winter months, uh, after it cools off a little bit more, you can plant something like cyclamen. You can plant primrose. There are a handful of uh, flowers that will do well. You could plant ornamental kale. Ornamental cabbage will give you attractive foliage through the uh through the cooler season 
but mm-hmm. not much in the way of permanent shrubs and and things that do bloom like azaleas and things like that they're only going to bloom for two three weeks out of the year so mm-hmm. i would go with you know a good hardy green shrub and, and the three i mentioned are probably the hardiest now if it gets mm-hmm. some light but not direct sun you could add dwarf burford holly to that list you could add green pittosporum to that list um but if it's if it's really fairly deep shade i mean cast iron plant or aspidistra it, it got its name because it is just one of the toughest things in the world mm-hmm. there's a new variety out there if you want some stays a little more compact that's called tiny tank but uh, hmm. those are things that I would that I would consider for that uh, shady corner. Okay. Last question: nematodes. You know, I, we quit putting we put them out in the spring, and in the heat we thought about putting them back out because you know we've got a dog, and um, we thought, okay, now it's starting to cool off. Is this the time to start to put them back out again? Well. I, you know, I tend to be reactive uh, rather than proactive in most cases. Now, if you're dealing with ticks, things like that, there are times you just really ought to put them out whether you see a problem or not. You know, mm-hmm. I, if I, when I have put nematodes out, I've usually gone about two years before I've had any reoccurrence of fleas. So I'm not one okay. to be going to the trouble to put them out if you don't need to. Now, having said that, if you need to put them out, this is a perfect time because the soils are so moist from the rain we got last week mm-hmm. uh, that this is the perfect time to put out beneficial nematodes. And people are putting them out for fire ants. People are putting them out for fleas. People are putting them out for a number of reasons. But, uh, I, you know, if you don't need to, I, I, I can think of something else I'd spend that $15 on <laughs> rather than nematodes. And okay. not to mention the time it takes. They're, you know, they they are by far the best control for many different problems. But if you don't have those problems, there's I don't. It's not something that I'm just gonna, you know, put out mm-hmm. because it's uh, September and I want to put them out. Now, one exception is my vegetable garden because usually at the beginning of each season I will put them out because of uh, insect larvae that may be in the soil that would be specific mm-hmm. to some of the vegetables that I grow. But overall, in the landscape, no, I don't think is necessary okay well thank you very much well always a pleasure get out and have a good sunday jeff we'll talk again okay next up is robert uh good morning robert hey bob i appreciate all your information that you send out and it's uh for free <laughs> that's a nice thing for you to do. <laughs> well it's worth at least as much as it costs i'll put it that way well there you go uh my question is uh I've got a sprinkler problem caused by a root. I have uh-huh. a about a 50-year-old live oak uh, that's probably 40 inches in diameter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the sprinkler head has uh, collided with the root. Now, the root is about five or six inches in diameter, mm-hmm. and it's about five feet away from the trunk of the tree. Okay. If worse comes to worse, is that... If I cut that root, is that going to be a problem? I wouldn't. Um, you know, my my arborist friends tell me that uh, if you want to uh, 
Uh, if you, if you want to be safe in trimming roots, you know, take the diameter of the tree in in uh, inches, divide by two, and that's how many feet you ought to stay away. If this if this tree is forty inches in diameter, I'm going to stay twenty feet away before I do anything. But now, there are you know sprinkler systems are pretty easy to modify, and um, you know I learned early on in my when I was doing a lot of landscaping myself, I, I have an iron digging bar that I call the magic digging bar because I could throw it up on in the air. It would come point down, ram into the ground on top of the biggest sprinkler line in the yard and puncture it. And you yeah. quickly learn about a neat little device called the compression joint. And yeah. if if I were, you know, facing this problem, I do a little excavating around there. I and you know, get get your pair of tubing cutters. You don't have to be uh if you don't want to do that, you can use what's called a wire saw. You don't have to dig a foxhole to be able to get to do this. But uh I would expose the pipe on either side and I'd simply cut the pipe on either side of where the offending root is. I'd, I'd glue an L in on each side, I'd come around it, I'd put a compression joint probably put a you know replace the sprinkler head a foot away from where it is now um and and you know there are lots of reliable sprinkler companies i like a company called sa rainmaker they've uh they've been around for many years first time i ever used them was probably 25 years ago but um i think in this case it's going to be a lot easier to cut and move the pipe than it is to cut that root, and uh, that tree is certainly certainly worth worth the effort, so to speak. So that's how yeah. I handle the situation, Robert. Absolutely. All right, Bob, you're the best. I appreciate it. You know, one other thing that I will tell you is that uh, chances are, with a tree that size, you and depending on what you have planted around it. It, you might just, uh, if the root hadn't actually broken the pipe, if it's just, uh, you know, interfering with the sprinkler head, you might just remove that sprinkler head. You might just, you know, usually they're on a little half-inch nipple. You can just unscrew it and either cap it or plug it and then decide if you really needed a sprinkler head in that area anyway. Um, well, there, I think there are a lot of options. It, uh, in this case, it, it has broken the pipe, so there okay. will be... Uh, and I, I do have compression joints, so I'll have to work on that. So. <laughs> you know that. Well, if the pipe's broken, you're going to have to dig anyway. And uh, right. for me, it'd be it'd be a whole lot more desirable to back off from that route a little bit and just, uh, you know, there's even some new flexible line out there. I'm, I'm still, you know, a Schedule 40 PVC guy. Just don't go with that Schedule 200 because that's what a lot of the shyster sprinkler companies use, and you end up with a lot right. of breakage. But Good old Schedule 40 pipe, a good can of rain and shine glue, and a uh, little bit of little bit of work with a shovel, and you'll solve that problem without too much trouble. Uh, sounds like your guy knows what you're doing, Robert. Well, yeah, I was with you all the way to that little bit of work with the shovel comes up. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, I it, it's your knowledge. The the first uh, the first thirty minutes are exercise. After that, it gets to be work. And you know, here at the nursery, we've uh, let's say we were not as conscious as we should have been. And I've got a few cypress trees that I have had to do exactly that with to uh, redo some some fairly major uh, water lines around them, not sprinkler lines, but water lines. And I can tell you, you, you will. You use a little bit of language that you wouldn't use in church before it's all over with, but it's not that big a job. The weather's getting a little bit nicer, so uh, I think this is a very solvable problem. 
right. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome, Robert. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right. Guess we better get a quick break in here. Thomas and uh, Martha are going to be the next two callers. I get to talk to you about the Cedar Eater of Texas. And uh, uh, once again, just I appreciate folks who do a good job of what they do. And the Cedar Eater, they're simply the best when it comes to taking care of problems like that dense you know ash juniper that tends to become such a problem and you know thank goodness we've had some rain but i I just look at the horrible fires we're looking at on the west coast uh and i think you know the hill country's prime for that kind of thing most summers because we are so overgrown with ash juniper and it it burns like a torch one of the best things you can do to protect yourself is get rid of that second growth cedar and nobody will do a better job of it than the cedar eater they come in with the machine that cuts the cedar off at ground level which kills it effectively grind it into a nice mulch and yes the mulch is flammable they could potentially burn but it's not going to spread like a huge wildfire i learned in fire school a long time ago that the height of the flame is going to be about three times as high as whatever's growing if you've got two inches of mulch on the ground i had a whole lot rather deal with six inch flame than a 20-foot tree that's going to be 60 feet flames up in the air. Cedar Eater just, it does so much for your land. It does so many good things, but it also greatly increases your fire safety. And I think watching what's happening on the West Coast should be a wake-up call for many of us in the Hill Country that we need to get our ash juniper under control. Nobody does a better job than the Cedar Eater. Learn more? Give them a call, 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743 for the Cedar Eater of Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning out there. Let's get straight back to the phone lines. Thomas, Martha, Sarah, and Pat. Thomas is next. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. It's super <laughs> morning, awesome sir. That you're taking my call today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for calling. Hey, I'm calling uh, because I have a continual uh, battle with, I believe it's the uh, goat head sticker. Uh, it's mm-hmm. got the red vine, the green leaf, and uh, it's just crawling all over the place, and I'm losing the war on it. And uh, I've tried, typically I'll pull it out of the ground, try to get all the roots and everything with it, and uh, it's a battle that I'm losing. So before Is, I break out we... the torch and just, I'm sorry, go ahead. Is is this uh, is this a vining plant or is this like a a grass that that just puts out the seed heads? It's a vining. It, it creeps along okay. the ground. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's usually what people call goat heads are actually a a grass. But um, and this one has prominent thorns or relatively small thorns. Yes, prominent thorns. I mean, it's okay. a it's a little uh, sticker thing. Uh, so they, uh, you know, when they dry, they get hard. So, yep. and I'm sure the dogs are spreading them all over the yard. Uh, right. But I try to catch them. But yeah, it's a it's a creepy crawly that expands all. You know, you'll get a little like a little bush segment, and then it'll creepy crawly all mm-hmm. around and just start taking over everything. And what what kind of grass do you have? Uh, I have no idea, Bob. I'm not that type of guy. I just got some green grass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, but and but these these troublesome plants are in your yard proper. They're out where you have good grass, and they're just a nuisance in among the grasses. Yes, it's uh, it's very odd. They're only in my backyards. I have two houses together, and it's an open fence uh, between the two properties, and it's only in those two backyards. 
So okay. that's why I kind of blame the dogs for uh, spreading. <laughs> yeah, well, they, like they probably do. <laughs> yeah, they probably do. One thing about, um, and, you know, there are two or three things that can fit this description. Burr clover is the one that comes to mind most, is that the weed tends to remain green later in the fall after the grass is browned out. And if you have Bermuda grass, there's always here any of those. First frost, it's the grass is going to brown out. And these things are going to stay green a bit longer. And fall or spring, either one, you can go through and just spray the whole area with uh, a mixture of vinegar and orange oil. And it will mm-hmm. totally kill. It will take care of everything from dandelions to your to your burrs to uh, winter grass to all sorts of things. And because your your basic grass has browned out, it will have no effect on it whatsoever. Um, and that's that's one of the easiest ways to go after it. Of course, uh, your lawnmower is going to help, and anything you do to strengthen the grass that's there. I mean, Bermuda or St. Augustine, either one, will totally choke these things out given time. But when grass is a little bit stressed, they get that foothold in there. Uh, and every one of those plants makes a lot of burrs out there. But the first first line of defense is... Uh, you know, is killing the young plants as they sprout, which typically will be before your grass starts greening up in the spring. Now, bad news is that this late in the season, they've made a lot of seeds. So even if you kill everything that's there, you can have some more of them sprout up next spring. But uh, that's how I would go about it. There is no selective herbicide, uh, natural or organic, that will kill them out effectively without harming your grass. But like I say, once the grass is turned brown, these things remain green a little bit longer, then you can go in there with a product that's totally safe for you and for the dogs and uh, and at least get started on killing them. You're going to have some of them next spring. If you have a reasonable number of them, you know, you may be able to just pull those. But um, uh, that that's that would be where I would start. Yeah. Yeah, they're becoming unreasonable. That's my, hence my call today. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as the orange oil goes, I think I may have got some type of flavored orange from a big box store. So what's the specifics on the orange oil that you talk about? Well, orange oil is a very powerful solvent, and it softens them up, and the vinegar is what actually kills the weed. Uh, My Uh favorite brand is Medina. Medina simply packages, I mean, orange oil, also called the limonene, they take and put a few drops of it in detergents and things like that. And it's the best counter cleaner in the world. I use it to clean my floors, use it to clean virtually everything in the house. And what you get at the grocery store is probably so diluted down that uh, it's not going to be very effective. Uh, I would visit a you know good nursery, garden center, yeah. probably even a feed store. Medina's putting it in pint bottles. The people that produce it realized how good it was and really raised the price about two years ago. Uh, Medina, is, their product is reasonably priced, but they started putting it in smaller bottles since you only need a relatively small amount of it. And any extra, like I said, make your own, make your own cleaner. You'll more than pay for it. You, you'll put, you know, 25 cents worth of orange oil, you know, along with water and things, and it's better than that $3 bottle of orange cleaner you pick up at the shelves in the grocery store. But uh, uh, I, I would look for pure orange oil. There's several brands out there, and I truly think Medina is the best one. Uh, buy a small bottle because you're not going to need very much. Uh, if you happen to be over our direction, we actually uh, 
printed up a list of all the different uses for orange oil that we'd be happy to give you if you want to see the other things you can do with it. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to make a trip that way, and I think that was my problem. I've got some diluted orange oil, so I'm going to have to go out there and do that. So I thought I'd give you a call before I uh, started burning uh, crop circles around the uh, cactus plants. <laughs> well, get rid we, of also, we also have a free <laughs> handout that will tell you exactly how to mix it and how to use it. So uh, yeah. look forward to helping you any way we can. All right, sounds good. You're super-duper, Bob. I appreciate your time. You have a great uh, day. Thank you for calling, Thomas. You do likewise. <laughs> Come on. All right, Martha's turn next. Uh, good morning, Martha. Hi. Hi, good morning. Thank you for good taking morning. my call. Thank you for calling. Um, First question, I have uh, hacked up a bunch of prickly pear, and I know I need to put uh, molasses on it. I actually did spray molasses on it, and we got a downpour that night. (laughs) Um, So should I spray some more, or should I use uh, dry molasses? Um, you know, the liquid is just cheaper. Uh, molasses is the, you know, key ingredient. Uh, okay. but uh, you, you just, that's a judgment call you're going to have to make. How big a pile okay. of, uh, prickly pear do we have to deal with here? It's about 10 by 12 feet. And then I've got another one that's even bigger, but I haven't started on it yet. Okay. If if it were mine, I probably would get out there with a front end loader and I would just kind of turn it over, uh, you know, just open it up a little bit so it would dry. But considering the potential for lots of spread, uh, I probably would go ahead and treat it. And you need to soak it pretty thoroughly. It's not just a light spray. What you're doing is encouraging the microbes that are going to get it to rot before it starts to sprout. So I'm probably going to treat it again. Now, if there's any delay, I mean, they're giving us a fair chance for rain again this week. Uh, You could put off you know, if if you're able to push it around a little bit, because once once it has started forming roots, once uh, Puntia prickly pear has started forming roots, then you're not going to be able to get it to rot. And unfortunately, every little tiny piece has the potential to make a whole new plant. So um, if it's really, really dense, I'd try to turn it a little bit so it'll dry. Uh, I would tend to, you know, and, and I usually do a smaller pile. I usually do it with a watering can rather than trying to spray. But just remember, you need to oh. get it all the way through the pile to be effective. Great. Okay. Um, second question. Uh, on my tomatoes, I planted fall tomatoes like mm-hmm. at the end of July. And uh-huh. some of them really have, the plants have hardly grown at all. Some of them actually have flowers. Um, will they keep on going? Um, oh, I've not really had luck with fall tomatoes in the past, and I thought well, I'd try it one more time. The We're, we're into uh, weather that is much more favorable to the gardener and to the tomato. I would fertilize. I suspect you'll get more growth in the next two or three weeks than you've gotten in the past two months since you planted them. It's just been so blasted hot. Uh, plants okay. have what's called a compensation point. It's how much energy it takes just to stay alive. Anything that's left over, they can use for growing and producing. And it's just been so hot that they have had very little left over to keep growing. So I think you're going to see a big change in things over the next couple of weeks. And uh, uh, might want to consider a little liquid fertilizer to boost them along. But, yeah, you've got lots of time and the potential for okay. good fall tomato production. 
else coming up from the... Yes, it does. Okay. Hello? Hello. Yeah. I think your phone cut out there for a second. Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, You had mentioned that the uh, sprouts coming up from the rootstock of the uh, peaches was a bad sign. Ours Uh have done that every year in the 15 years since they've been planted. Uh So um, they've been stressed this whole time like that? Probably so. Texas is just a stressful climate. And, um, you know, you have to realize that the rootstock is a much stronger plant than uh, the part that's grafted on is called the scion. The rootstock was chosen because it is so vigorous and it spreads so widely and uh, it's, you know, it's it's very much an ongoing problem. I, it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, your, your trees are badly stressed. A lot of times uh, they'll, you know, they'll want to sprout out just because they've got sunshine and water. But okay. uh, it's, it's a, it, you know, it's something you should just always keep an eye on. And anytime you see them, if you catch them while they're small, you know, your thumb, you can just bust them off without any problem. Yeah. They get a little bigger, just, you know, use your shears to cut them as close to the trunk as you can. But uh, I, it's not a bad sign, and it's not a sign that you're neglecting things. Uh, it's just sort of part of the one of the things we have to do if okay. we want to grow good peaches. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. You get out and have a good okay. Sunday. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Let's get a quick break out of the way here, and then we'll talk with Sarah and Pat and keep going down the list. I get to talk about Medina. Speaking of, you know, they're just they're just a company. Been right here in our area for over fifty years. And they're just committed to excellence. That's why, like the orange oil, they simply package the very best that's out there. Same thing's going to be true of uh, single-source products like seaweed and molasses and such as that. And the products that they make themselves, the has to grow fertilizers, the soil activator, the Medina Plus, and the dry granular growing green fertilizer. They simply use the best ingredients out there. And they're always, you know, they're always looking to just give you quality at a fair and reasonable price. A lot of their products aren't fully labeled organic. Number one, that's an expensive process. But I was talking to Stuart, for instance, about... Uh, you know, one of the liquid products, and he said, well, he said, I can use natural urea or I can use synthetic urea. They're identical chemically, he said, but the natural's three times as expensive, and that's what I'd have to use to call it organic. I'd rather save folks some money and give them a product that's just totally natural. You know, Medina, (laughs) they're just out to help the gardener, whether you're gardening on 3,000 acres or, you know, 30 square feet. They're there to help you with quality products that have stood the test of time. They have uh, all sorts of good things. They want to remind you that their growing green fertilizer is a great fall fertilizer. They don't play the gimmick game of calling it winterizer and putting it in a different bag. You just need to know that it's a good product to use year-round. It will never burn. You can put it on when it's wet. And let me tell you, if you're going to fertilize once a year, fall is the most important time to fertilize. And you want to feed not only your grass, but your trees and shrubs and ground covers. Growing Green is one of the best products you can use. When you receive that name, Medina Agriculture, you're always getting quality. If you want to check out their full line of products, you can go to MedinaAg.com. That's Medina. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. It's going to be Sarah and Pat and Mary and Margaret, and Sarah is up first. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Bob. How are you? 
It's a beautiful morning. It's uh, it's the weather we've been waiting for. It's going to get a little warmer a few more times, but, you know, getting September, you know we're just about to get in one of the two best seasons of the year around here. It's true. We've come over that hump, and we're going to be on the other side of it. I'm sitting on the patio talking to you, enjoying the morning. So, And I wanted to tell you, you commented a few calls ago, somebody thanked you for your your um, you know, the knowledge and everything that you share with us. And you said it's only worth as much as you pay for it. I'm going to tell you <laughs> it's, that it's invaluable. And you know why? Because why it that? takes our time to listen to you. And my well, time is invaluable. And I think most people's time is invaluable. So there you go. It's, we can't make <laughs> any more of it. And uh, we better make use of what we have. So uh, exactly. <laughs> how can how can I help you and make your day better and and help you get more into it? Speaking of limited time, yep, I've got a few things. Um, I have a firecracker fern. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. When you look mm-hmm. at the pictures, I, I've got a lot of little leaves along those you know stems that go out. <laughs> a lot of the ones I see are kind of um, don't have so many leaves, but I've got a lot of little leaves. But well, they're they're either... actually two. They're two forms. One has larger leaves. One has smaller leaves. Uh, uh, if you want to look it up, it's called Russellia. It's uh, like Russell, and um, yes, and so I... yeah, they're they're two completely different forms that an observant person would see. But uh, yeah, I'm sure that's what you have. So it sounds yes. like. So they are very happy, and I'm going to need to thin them out. <laughs> Okay. And share them with people. So, do you recommend that I? Is there a specific time of year to do that, um, or do they even transplant well? Should I just pull some of them because it's no. pretty crap right now? Yeah, it, you you will thin them out with the pruning shears rather than trying to dig up pieces of it. That's probably not going to be successful. Um, if okay. you want to start some cuttings, you can certainly do that. Uh, they root relatively easily in uh, perlite or, you know, good clean sand. So um, if you want to start some more plants for your friends, you can. But trying to dig up and separate the big plants, you're likely to just end up killing it all, and you certainly don't want to do that. Okay, so when I cut them back, that part will die? Is that what you're saying? When you cut them back, you know, um, you, if you if you want to make more plants, you can use the cuttings that you take off to root and start more plants. Your big yes, plant, I, you know, should uh, will I be understand fine. That, what, but yeah. but I need to thin them out, Bob. I need to. They're they're going to need to not come back in some places because they're choking uh, up around my. Um, uh, lilies and things. Sure, sure. No, just you can be pretty brutal with those pruning shears, and you won't okay. hurt the base plant. It's going to come back out from your pruning. If you're going to do it this fall, I would do it pretty soon because we don't want to wait too late in the fall to prune because that will stimulate a burst of growth, which could then freeze back. So if you're going to do any fall pruning on them, I would do it you know, within the next week or two, so any growth that comes out has a chance to harden off before winter. Um, given the choice, if they were not so thickly overgrown, I probably would do my pruning in early spring, but it sounds like uh, it, this has become a rather vigorous plant because of your good care, and if you need to if you need to thin it out, you can, you can thin it out pretty heavily, and uh, if you're going to do okay. it this fall, I'll do it in the very near future. Okay, and I have some iris bulbs that were given to me. Um, this is a good time to put those in the ground. 
Now, you say bulbs. Do you mean so bulbs they, or do you mean the, the rhizomes, uh, the thick stems? They already have stems on them. Okay, they're, because there's, got, there's a... About six inches. Yeah, there, there are many kinds of iris, and there is a true iris bulb called Dutch iris, which is a beautiful plant. We will plant those probably in October and November. Uh, what you have are, we call them rhizomes. They're like a stem that grows right on the surface of the ground. And, yes, this is an ideal time of year to be planting those. And when you plant them, you want to still see the top of that. You want that rhizome to be sort of half in, half out of the soil. And um, it's, you know, they're, they're, we, we call them uh, German iris, flag iris, bearded iris. They go by a lot of different names. And uh, this is the best time of year to divide and replant. And uh, if someone's gifted you with plants, that's great. I will tell you, if you go out and buy more, it is one of those plants where recent hybridization has really improved the plant because we now have iris that bloom more than once a year. That was a big problem with the old-fashioned German iris. You got a beautiful show in the spring, and that was it until the next spring. But if you mm-hmm. if you inquire, you'll see what they call reblooming, and uh, they can bloom as much as four or five times during the summer, which to the, me makes them a very superior plant. Plus, there's some great new colors and things. I, I love iris because they, they love the sun. They're very dependable. But if something's going to bloom four times a year, that makes me a lot happier than something that's just one and done in the spring only. No, I agree. And so then also, um, uh, jacaranda. Will that grow mm-hmm. well down here? Jacaranda is not totally cold hardy. Yes, it will grow, it will bloom, but uh, it may need a little bit of protection if we have an unusually cold winter. You know, I don't know how long you've lived in this area, but I've been here long enough to have seen some pretty cold winters that would freeze out and kill the Hakaranda. But uh kind of winters we've had the past five years or so would not be a problem to it at all. Okay. Last thing, uh, Japanese beetles, which are all, uh, you know, you know they're everywhere now. I understand they're very destructive. Those grubs are, are very destructive compared to the um, uh I'm talking the June bugs. These uh-huh. are the iridescent ones, you know, that right. are that are like dive bombers. And um, we've had a couple of yards in the neighborhood that have a have a problem, and and uh-huh. uh, they're going downhill. So I know nematodes, of course. And um, is there anything else you'd recommend? And when is a good? I heard you on another caller say this is a good time for nematode application. It's perfect time for nematode application. When you see yeah. the beetles flying, that's when you should be putting your nematodes out because okay. the 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 destructive grubs are the ones that you know have recently hatched from the eggs, so to speak. Uh, big old grubs that you may find when you're digging around, they're beyond their feeding stage. They're beyond doing any damage. They're just waiting for the weather to be right. Uh, go fly around, have a little fling, and lay more eggs. So when you see the beetles flying, that tells you they're out laying the eggs. And the first couple of uh, larval stages are called the first and second larval instars. Those are the easiest ones to kill with the nematodes and are the most destructive ones. So uh, nematodes okay. are far more effective than any poison out there. The time to apply is whenever you see the beetles flying. Some parts of town seem to have a bunch of them. Some have none. So once again, I tell people, watch your yard, watch your lights. If you start seeing the adults, by all means, put some of the beneficial nematodes out. 
Yeah, these good Japanese beetles, it, it's not even around the lights. I mean, you you know, they're just uh, the neighbor that has a very bad problem. I, I didn't know what they were. I, I had walked across her yard to uh, put something, put a, put a, I wanted to mark her, her, um, her clean out <laughs> because uh-huh. it had got covered over, you know, and uh, all of a sudden these things were everywhere and I, I, my eyes weren't quick enough to catch them, you know, in flight. Um, so I finally, finally saw one and uh, well, realize there are a lot of beetles out there and there are some lookalikes. Now, every beetle out there has a grub for a larval state. Um, they, you know, don't don't confuse and, and think that all every kind of iridescent beetle you see right now is a Japanese beetle because there are lots of other ones out there. But uh, again, the nematodes will take care of all of them. I uh, I love the words of Charles Darwin many years, many, many years ago. Darwin said the good Lord must have an inordinate fondness of beetles because he made so <laughs> many of them. So <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm not telling you to run out and panic unless you're real sure what you're looking at. But uh, beneficial nematodes will take care of lots of other things, including fire ants and fleas. And uh, if you do indeed have a problem with Japanese beetles or any of the other beetles which produce a damaging grub, then uh, by all means, uh, get with the, and I like the live beneficial nematodes. I like the ones that come on the little blue sponge much better than the dry form. The dry form is easier. Uh, People that sell it love it because they can put it on the shelf and let it sit there for months. But uh, Mm -hmm. if you want the most effective, if you really anticipate a problem, uh, get the live nematodes on the blue sponge and uh, and get them out whenever you've started seeing the adults. Uh, Don't panic over finding some of the grubs in the ground or in the beds because, again, the bigger grubs you're seeing now are not the damaging ones. It's those little bitty first and second larval instars that are the things we really fear. Well, I had Sam literally come out um, for this uh-huh. neighbor because he's 95. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and Sam said, these are my nemesis. Oh, okay. Well, he, he knows what he's talking about. He's been doing it for about 30 years. Yep. Well, thank you again. Let you get on to the other folks. And you get out and enjoy this beautiful Sunday. <laughs> it's good to talk to you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. And let's get straight back to the phone lines. It's going to be Pat and Mary and Margaret and Judy. Pat is up first. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, sir. Good morning. I need some help with a pomegranate. Okay. Um, it is loaded with fruit this year. Mm-hmm. But so far, every year they get to where they start turning a yellowish color. Mm -hmm. Then they start getting black spots on them. Mm -hmm. And eventually some of them start turning a reddish color, but it's like the insides never get all the way ripe. And then they get, they start splitting and they either have these little tiny beetle looking things in them or they have ants. Right. Um, the issue with pomegranates is almost always water-related. You know, it's the tough thing about them is that they produce their fruit in absolutely the most stressful time of year uh, that exists here in South Texas, and uh, most of us don't water nearly as much as we should. This is why we wind up with a real tough skin on them, which then splits when we, you know, get watering. You can help with the... Uh, 
uh, discoloration if you want to mix up some corn water tea and spray but it's uh, <clears throat> the secret to really growing good pomegranates here is just to overdo it with water in July and August and uh, when we get this time of year you can get some of them are going to be relatively good quality but a lot of others including mine are going to have a lot of the problems that uh, that you've just described so make it just i mean if you really like pomegranates you can grow them here but they really need a lot more care at the time of year that it's the least amount of fun to give them to a, to give it to them and that is uh you know in those hot hot summer months if you will give them a thorough deep watering not just the surface watering but if you give them a thorough deep watering weekly you'll be amazed at what a good crop of pomegranates should grow well, do they need to be in full sun yes ma'am the more sun, okay. more sun, the better. They uh, okay. and it's perfectly normal. They're all going to turn brilliant yellow in the fall and drop every leaf on them. I think it helps to thin them out. You know, they will make an enormous bush. They really can't be pruned into a tree. But I try to go through every spring and probably thin them out by thirty percent because they'll just kind of take over whatever area you allow them to. And it's been my observation that if you don't thin them out, you end up with much smaller fruit that's much lower quality. Oh, some of these are the size of a softball. Yeah, I mean, yes, they are. You know. Yeah. And some of them are real small. But um, it, now it's planted along a drip line from a, um, like a carport area. Uh-huh. So, and there's water faucets right there beside it that are used on a semi-regular basis. But mm-hmm. purposeful watering, no, we haven't done that do yep. we need to um, give it some fertilizer also? It will certainly improve it, and you can just use the same organic fertilizer you'd use on your grass and everything else. Medina or okay. Nature's Creation, any of those would be excellent for pomegranates. They're, they're not picky about what they eat, but they do need some nutrition. Okay. And then the final question about them is, if I take cuttings off of the – because we thinned it out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's got some shoots coming up again. Are those relatively easy to start, or should I do something different to start some? Well, you want to use the mature wood. You don't want real soft, succulent wood. You want wood that has had a little bit of time to harden off. The best time to take those cuttings is going to be in the fall, as it is with most hardwood plants. Uh, after they drop their foliage, at that point, you can take and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take like a, an 8-inch pot and probably put 20 or 30 cuttings in that pot of perlite. Keep it moist, uh, keep it where it doesn't freeze, but where it, you know, gets some chill. And uh, you should have the majority of them well rooted by February or March. Uh, if you want to, you, and you don't plan to do as many of them, you can always do air layers, just as we do on fig trees. And if you want to do that, you should do that right now. Okay. All right, sir. Thank you very much. And I love your term, purposeful watering. That's one of the best terms I've ever heard for, uh, you know, doing what we need to do. And uh, you practice that that wonderful term next summer. And you'll, I'm sure you get some good pomegranates this fall, but you should get a bumper crop next year. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Pat, very much. All right, uh, next up is Mary. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Bob Webster? Yes. Uh, 
Thank you for call for answering my call and letting me call. And I, I love your voice. Well, thank um, you. I've been trying to call you for a while uh, and gone through. I have a an old country. I've, I've lived here since nineteen sixty four, and okay. it's been there. And and last year it started uh, dying. One side started dying, and it did not come back this year. Uh, and now this year, uh, the side towards the house is dying, and it, the leaves are almost all off of the tree. Uh, I've tried to dig everything out, put new dirt, uh, miracle grow, and uh, a little mulch on the top. And I just can't, I don't know what to do. Well, first of all, get away from miracle grow. It's a chemical fertilizer, synthetic fertilizer, and it's certainly not the best thing to use. Um, that pecan tree has roots everywhere. You're not really going to do a whole lot digging around or trying to improve the soil. The, I have seen pecan trees actually suffering. We, you know, we were so dry and so hot this summer that I suspect that the problem is mainly, you know, just that it has, has not gotten as much water as it would like. If this is a big valuable tree, you might like to have an arborist take a look at it and see if there's anything else going on with it because I don't want you to lose a tree and I certainly don't want it to fall on your home. But uh, yeah, there's fine. a fella here in town named David Vaughn. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't actually do any cabling or bracing or that kind of work. So he's not going to tell you about something you don't need. He just simply does consulting work. But if it were my tree, I would, uh, and, and you can get his number Googling it or call the nursery here and we, we can give it to you. But I'd probably have him come out and take a look at it because pecans don't really get any serious diseases. Most of the problems I see are uh, simply a water issue, but David could probably take a look at you at at your tree and tell you if it is uh you know first of all if it's structurally sound if there's any danger of it falling and what you can do to get it healthy again i've seen trees that were two-thirds dead that have been able to be brought back you want to talk a little bit more i'll get don to put you on hold we'll be right back after the news here on ktsa san antonio south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air talk to bob now 210-599-5555 one line open. If you hurry, you just might grab it. We're going to talk a little more to Mary, and then it will be Margaret and Judy, and of course we'll open up some more lines. But uh, it's a nice Sunday morning out there. Uh, a lot of nurseries got a lot of plant material in this week. I know we got five trucks in two days, including first really good quality citrus. I'm sure Phoenix and some of the other good nurseries also are getting uh, getting a crop of citrus. People always ask why citrus is so hard to find, and the answer is very easy because of this uh, greening disease the uh, department of agriculture limits who can sell citrus who can grow and sell citrus we only and all the citrus that's sold in texas has to be grown in texas there are only two growers in texas and that's why it's sometimes pretty hard to come by but i think you're going to find new supplies arriving at uh, a lot of good nurseries across the area if you've been looking for a good lemon or lime or satsuma or whatever uh, you're probably going to find it in the very near future uh, we were talking to uh, mary about her uh, problematic pecan tree and um you know pecans just don't just don't have many disease issues but uh i've seen some pecan trees uh, in yards not so much out in the country but i've seen some pecan trees in yards that actually had big 
portions of the top die out, you know, with the kind of drought that we've had the past couple of years. But uh, generally speaking, you know, they, they can be brought back. So, uh, like I say, I'd, I would think about calling uh, David Vaughn and get him to come out and take a look at your tree and give you tell you what needs to be done to, uh, to save the tree. Okay. Uh, uh, my neighbors both on the, each side have big pine trees, and they're doing okay. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, it's it's hard to say, um, but you know, I, I look on my own ranch. I have lots of pecan trees, and I had some trees that were growing right along a creek that were basically spoiled because they always had the water they needed, so they just didn't grow as big a root system. I've got other trees a hundred yards away out in the field that uh, probably have roots to the next county. When we had the severe drought back in 2011, I had several pecan trees along the creek just fold up and died because they had not developed as extensive a root system. My trees out in the field hardly knew there was even a drought going on. So there can be lots of influences Lots of different things can cause problems with pecans, but they're really not susceptible to diseases that are simply going to move in and uh, you know and kill the tree. So I'd I get some advice from an expert and see what he would recommend to save the tree. You don't think it was a miracle grow, do you? Because uh, oh no, no miracle grow is not a sure. damaging. Pro- no, it's it's just a lousy fertilizer. It, uh, in my opinion, it. It is so water-soluble, most of it just runs off. It is destructive to the microbial life in the soil. And quite frankly, I'm sure you didn't put on enough to affect it much one way or the other. Uh, It's just the reason I love organics is because they're in a totally different chemical state. They bind to the soil. They stay in the soil. They never burn. They don't wash away. So um, I, I just tell you, make a different selection. Next time you need to get fertilizer, I think there's some other products that uh, your plants will like better. But it's not destructive. It's just not the not the quality that uh, some of your good organics are. And uh, how about the mulch? Would that dry it out? More? Yeah, no, oh, no. Mulch, would, mulch would do nothing but help. You don't really want it piled up against the trunk, but as long as it didn't have some sort of herbicide, and there are some mulches that they put bad things in, but general, most of the mulches you buy, uh, there's nothing at all bad around them, about them, but we don't pile it up against the trunk. We put about over the root zone of the trees, and those are all good. Yeah, well, I hate to lose it because that's my shade tree in the back. Bedroom. Well, and that's that's why I think it's worth spending a few dollars to get David to uh, take a look at it because he's the best of the best. He's a guy that teaches the courses that other arborists have to take if they want to become certified. And uh, I've had him out to look at my trees when I have a problem with them. And matter of fact, just this week he helped out with a fellow that had a tree problem. We were actually able to uh, send him some pictures and he can figure out what the problem was. So. If it were my tree, that's what I would do. And uh, like I say, he doesn't have anything to sell you except a little bit of his time. So he's he's not going to give you bad advice. And uh, I I trust him completely. I've only known him for about 30 years or so. (laughs) So he knows what he's doing. David, what did you say? David Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. Let me see if I can make my fingers work fast enough and see if I can give you his phone number. Let's see here. David Vaughn, and you would reach him at area code 210-788-4986. 4986, okay. 
Okay, sir. And I, can I ask you another question? Go right ahead. Uh, I have a, a, a rosemary mm-hmm. uh, plant, and I bought about, this is my fourth one, but this one I took it out of the planter, and uh, I planted it by the by the sidewalk in the front. Okay. And it's not doing too good either. It, how, it, how long has it been planted, Mary? About two months, three months. Okay. You need to be watering it very thoroughly and deeply. Uh, you know, summertime is sort of a hard time to get things planted. Once rosemary has its roots down and established, uh, you don't have to water very often at all. But when you first plant it, you need to water pretty frequently to get it up and growing. And it uh, doesn't really matter whether it's uh, spreading form or the upright form. should start doing better, you know, as the weather cools off. And just remember, when you water it, really, really, really water it thoroughly. Then let it go mm-hmm. until it's dry about a knuckle deep and water it really thoroughly again. A lot of people have problems with rosemary because they water too often and not deeply enough when they water. So be sure you're really soaking it when you water it, but then let that soil get good and dry on the surface and soak it again. As the weather cools off in the fall, it should do much better for you. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. It has plenty of sun. Yeah, that's what they like. <laughs> well, thank you for your help. You've been very Always. kind. Always a pleasure, Mary. Let me know what you find out about that pecan tree, too. I'll be interested in hearing what David has to suggest for you. All right. Well, we thank you, and let's move on and talk to Margaret. Uh, Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Good, good. And I just want to thank you and Dr. Kirby for uh, giving us some good information (laughs) and taking our mind off things for a while on these days. Well, the the veterinarians just don't come any better than Dr. Kirby. I'm so blessed to be able to sit and learn from him on Sunday mornings. I'm looking forward to to having him here sitting here next to me in about 45 minutes or so because I've got my share of questions for him too. But how can I help you today? Okay, I got a few questions. Um, First, um, I have a queen's crown. I have a pink Uh one and a white one. Okay. The pink one is doing fine. I mean, it's flowering. It's beautiful. The white one is very green, a lot of new growth, but it's not flowering. And the difference between the two is, is that the pink one is in a spot where there's um, morning shade, afternoon sun, but it's growing under uh, shade cloth. Uh-huh. And the other one is in full sun. I mean, all okay. day long. You know, has it bloomed for you before? How long have you had your white one in the ground? Last year it bloomed. That was the the first year we had it. As is true with many plants, white flowering ones are wimps. Uh, Most, it's not 100%, but across the board, in general, a plant with white flowers is not going to be as strong um, as a plant somehow with the pigmented flowers. Now, Queen's Crown is an interesting vine, and there are many, many, many different, I guess you'd call them sub-varieties, even though with some of them, you know, the flowers may look almost identical. Uh, uh, there, There's a deep pink one, and there's one that starts blooming in April or May, blooms all summer long. There's another one that looks just like it that doesn't start blooming until June. July. And so this year, I wouldn't judge too much because we were so hot 
in August mm-hmm. that even the Queen's Crown looked absolutely horrible at the time mm-hmm. of the year that it normally looks pretty good. With the rains the past 10 days or so, Queen's Crown, I've seen more buds coming out, more flowers coming out on Queen's Crown than I have all summer. So let's don't judge it too harshly for probably another month. Let's see how it responds to this rain. But I tell mm-hmm. people, you know, when you buy them, buy them at the nursery in bloom so you can see how mm-hmm. they do because there are some there are some wimps out there that grow well, well that just don't give you a lot of flowers. And the white ones are never, in my experience, they're never going to be as vigorous or have as many flowers as the pink. But there are definitely some white ones out there that uh, tend to grow and bloom much better. So let's give this one uh, a little time to see how it comes out. Uh, now that it's had some good soaking rains, and if it doesn't give you good uh, color this fall, I think I'd be looking for another one that uh, a another. little bit more dependable. Okay. Um, my next question is: I have a kumquat, and this is the second year it's in the ground, and it's just the leaves have just shriveled up brown. Everything's fallen off it, and just looks like a twig coming up out of it. And are you fertilizing it regularly? What do you feed with, and how often do you water it? Uh, uh, We fertilize regularly. Um, My husband has watered it. He puts the hose there and and just lets it run. Um, And uh, now he did put some Epsom salt around it. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Or you put some around the base. Yeah. Usually it's not necessary on citrus, but on the other hand, it really doesn't hurt anything. Um, It's possible... You know, if the leaves are just getting brown, it may be getting watered a little too often. Usually, if it's getting too dry, you'll have a yellowing of leaves, especially the older leaves. It'll yellowing and start dropping. If you just Mm -hmm. start getting brown leaves all over, that's many times a sign that it is staying too wet. So, water thoroughly, but, um, you know, as we cool off, you're going to need to water even less. I would probably give it a little bit of Super Thrive, maybe a little bit of Garrett juice, mm-hmm. and see if you can encourage a little bit of good new growth on it this fall. But it sounds to me mm-hmm. like uh, your hubby's been killing it with kindness. Yeah, okay. Okay, so now, I mean, it's just a twig now. It has no leaves or nothing, so just leave it in the ground and see what happens? I, I would leave it. Uh, you should... If you know if it's going to come back out, it it certainly should in the next month or six weeks. But see if you can find some of this product called Super Thrive. I've seen it bring yeah. back plants that I thought were totally dead. Don't get a big jug; it's expensive. You just need a very mm-hmm. small amount of it. But I would water it with that. Plus, I would spray the top of the plant with it, and um, mm-hmm. let's give it about thirty days before we give it the final rites. Okay. And my that last question. My- yeah, go ahead. T- on tomatoes, I've planted um, Romas, Juliets, and Sun Golds, uh-huh. and the plants the plants are beautiful and a lot of flowers, but I'm not getting any fruit. Um, it may be, uh, and, and these are you've, you've got some cherry types. You've got uh, you said you've got some Romas, you've got some Juliets, and Sun Gold. Yeah. Um, it's it's almost certainly just from the severe severe heat. Uh, a lot of uh, my sun gold stopped producing when we got those hundred and eight degree days. So 
I would mm-hmm. say uh, when it cools off a little bit, I think you're going to see the fruit come. If you're not feeding regularly, get some has to grow or something like that and uh, mm-hmm. give them a good shot of that. But I, I think it's just weather-related. Those are ones that don't really suffer from cooler nights. They should produce well into the fall. But, you know, up until up until about two weeks ago, we had some of the most intense, severe heat that we've had and uh, right. I, that's it, it, certainly I've seen it in my own garden, but I wouldn't give up. I think you're going to see things change a great deal. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the fruit that's on there probably split with uh, mm-hmm. with all the rains we had last week. But I, we've got a lot of time to get a lot of good new fruit. So be a little patient with it, and I think it'll come out for you. Okay. That's it. Well, thank you very much, Bob, and you have a blessed day. Hey, you do the same. It's good to talk uh-huh. to you. And uh, let's go ahead and talk to Judy. Uh, good morning, Judy. Morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, I called before. I had a, uh, a Bermuda grass yard, and okay. I wanted to replace it with the carpet grass. And you said uh, just kind of plug it in here and there. Mm-hmm. But since all these wonderful, wonderful rains, now I have massive amounts of grass burrs, which is why I did not mm-hmm. want Bermuda grass. What the heck do I do now? Um, basically, mow off as many as you can. problem with grass burrs is they're mixed in with your other grass, and anything that kills yeah. the grass burrs would be harmful to your grass. The good news is that grass burrs are an annual grass, and they're going to totally die this winter. You know, I there, there are times that... Um, you know, you can get out with an old burlap sack or something and literally just, you know, drag it through and pick up as many of the burrs as you can. This fall or next spring, I definitely would uh, put a layer of compost over that area. Uh, a few years ago, I had an area we used for a croquet court that literally the grass burrs were so thick the dogs wouldn't walk into it. All I did, I put about an inch of compost over it, fertilized uh and there's something that in in compost it seems to work as a pre-emergent herbicide against grass burrs and instead of having you know a thousand plants in there i think i pulled about five plants out the whole summer and i haven't had grass burrs in that area since so get through the summer as best you can um, mow as much as you can to eliminate as many burrs as possible and either this fall or next spring put half an inch to three quarters of an inch of compost over the area this is going to encourage your grass to thicken it up and it also seems to work as pretty good pre-emergent against grass burrs awesome okay thank you and also you were just discussing the queen's crown is there yes. a specific name to look for for the longest blooming one? No, I've not found it. I just, uh, okay. I, you know, deal with a good nursery. I know our growers are very picky. They grow them from cuttings, and uh, they're real picky about where they take their cuttings in order to get the ones that, uh, you know, that do best. If you have a neighbor or somebody that has a really good one, you can actually take some cuttings and root them yourself. But, uh uh, I wish, and you can't tell by looking at them, oh. <laughs> I wish we knew how to just really pick them. We're just really careful who we buy from, and, uh, yeah. you know, we've got, my business partner has one of the best ones I've ever seen, and we always take cuttings off of it and take back to the growers and say, hey, make more of this one, And uh, but I no, I, nobody's put a name to one that I've seen yet. I'll sure let you know if somebody does. 
Okay. Well, thank you so much. Ah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. All right. Let's, uh, let me do a little spot here and talk about our friends at Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Love talking about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems because uh, they just are simply the best in the best when it comes to roofing. I've seen a lot of companies out there had a have had a lot of experience with roofs. Lived in an old house with a metal roof that eventually went bad, and uh, got a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on it close to 20 years ago. Not one single problem since then. Here at the nursery, we paid a lot of money before we knew about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, but got a cruddy roof. Oh, not all metal roofs are the same. It promptly rusted out. That company wouldn't honor their guarantees, but we call Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. They replaced it. Actually, their roof was uh, probably less expensive than the original bad roof, and not one problem since that time. If you're looking for the roof that is truly a lifetime roof, if you want to work with a company, they, they certainly honor their guarantee because they don't have to. They never have to do anything. And they're just an excellent company putting on a fantastic roof. They're energy efficient. They'll save you money on utility bills, save you money on your insurance. Lots of different looks, too. Lots of different colors available, actually. And if you don't like the look of standing seam metal, hey, they've got roofs that look like shake shingles or slate or ceramic tile. They just always do the best work with the best roofs around. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems, you can always reach them at 210-822-6868. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, here we are back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning. We're going to talk to Madeline and Linda and Valerie will be in the next three callers. Madeline is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Hello? Yes, good morning. I have a question about a persimmon tree. Okay. Uh, could it be putting out suckers? It looks like it just really grew, but I don't think it's any fruit on these tall, straight limbs, and I was wondering if I should cut them off. I wouldn't suggest it. This is this is the Asian persimmon, Fuyu, or Tamapan, or Taninashi, one of those. It's one of those. Okay. Um, they are a little slow growing, but I, and you may occasionally get some suckering from the roots, and they are almost always grafted. So if you get any suckering at the base of the plant, I would, uh, I would very definitely trim those out. But on the plant itself, um, the so-called water sprouts that tend to grow out, grow upwards. If it's the the persimmons are an upright tree, and unfortunately, you can't really shape them like you can shape a, a peach tree. But uh, I, I really, it's one tree that you don't really have to do much pruning on normally to get good fruit production. They they do take a while to get up to a productive size, but. You know, they're just, uh, once they start producing, they generally produce very heavily. They just, well, in the fall it's, of... It's really loaded. I mean, I okay. mean, the limbs are just dragging to the ground. Okay. But these tall, straight ones, as far as I can tell, they don't seem to have any fruit on them. And would you say that these are limbs that have grown mainly through this spring and summer, or are they limbs yes. that have been there yes. for a while? Yes. Okay. Everybody who sees it, wow, it, your persimmon just really grew. And uh, and it did Let's grow, see. but I, I'm thinking these are, I don't know, I think when the leaves drop, I'll be able to tell better if there's, or when the fruit is really orange. Well, but see, if this is growth that came out this year, 
it in effect came out after flowering season and and didn't really have a chance to form flower buds and make fruit. Oh. What when the time that I'd like to prune a tree like a persimmon is when it's in bloom in the spring, and that way I can take off the limbs that have the fewest flowers and leave the limbs that have the most, and I that way never, I'm not. In, I never I'm see sorry. the blooms on the. I don't know what they look like. I I can never <laughs> see them. They're much more nondescript than a peach or a, a a plum, but I would wait. I would do my pruning. Normally, your persimmon's going to bloom in about February, maybe into March. Uh, watch it perhaps a little bit more closely than you have, especially on those lower limbs, and uh, you'll be able to tell which ones. Again, they're not they're not showy. It doesn't make just a big blast of pink flowers out there the way a peach tree does, but you will be able to distinguish the flowers if you look carefully for them in about February, uh, early to mid-February. So it's possible they just didn't have a chance to bloom. Exactly. Exactly. The wood the wood has to be I mean, this year's growth, it's kinda like a blackberry. This year's growth is what's gonna produce next year's flowers. So obviously it's very happy with the care that it was getting and it just chose this summer to put on a bunch of growth. But uh there's no way that any of that growth would make flowers or fruit until it's been through uh through winter weather and then had a chance to bloom in the spring now if you feel like it's getting out of hand if you feel the tree's getting too big you can certainly trim those back to some extent but don't be too vigorous with the shears or you'll reduce next year's fruit crop yeah well no i'll just be patient and see what happens (laughs) that's the hardest thing about being a gardener is having to be patient well, waiting for them to ripen, that's already good training. So. Hey, well, and you don't want to pick them before they're ripe because most persimmons, oh, man, that's astringent yeah. is that. I think that word was invented to describe persimmons, and they will pucker you unbelievably. And it's so odd. Once they're fully ripened, they are one of the sweetest, best, most tastiest fruits you will ever grow. But uh, I think you're really going to enjoy them. All right. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Thank you, Madeline. Goodbye. All right, uh, let's get back to these phone lines. And uh, that's probably about as many as we're going to be able to, to handle through the show. So it looks like we're going to talk to Linda and Valerie and Christy and Glenn. And Linda is up first. Good morning. Good morning. I have I, I have one question about my avocado tree. It's about three feet tall now. Okay. Um, how far out do I water to make sure I'm getting all the roots? Okay, so I take it this is in the ground, not in the pot. Yes. If you will figure, if you figure how far the limbs spread and go about half that much further. If the limbs are 12 inches wide, if you're watering 18 inches out, you're probably, you know, getting, getting all the roots watered that you really need to water. Most of the water taken up by the tree. Now, this doesn't really amount, uh, you know, go for all the nutrients, but most of the water taken up by the tree, we're learning, is, you know, closer to the trunk. So, uh, uh, this business about having to soak the drip line, we're finding that even on a big tree, if we're 10 feet out away from the trunk, we're covering most of the zone that really, really takes up most of the water. So, you don't have to spread it out too much. Now, is okay. this a, uh, is this one of the Mexican varieties that you purchased, or is this one that you grew from seed? I grew it from seed. Okay. Remember that it is not going to be as cold hardy 
as some I of these uh, newer varieties. So be prepared to protect it this winter. But having said that, there was a seed-grown one for many years down at the uh, uh, Southwest Craft Center downtown. That thing grew 20 feet tall and I think, you know, had enough avocados to feed the whole staff down there. So you can do this. You're going to have to be patient, usually at six or seven years before they're mature enough to keep or to form fruit. But if you keep it protected through the winter months, you'll do okay. Yeah, it's been in the ground about three years now. Okay, <laughs> you're about halfway there then. You're a patient lady, but I have to tell you, after three years, it ought to be more than three feet tall, so maybe you need to fertilize it a little bit more often. Uh, I would expect a vigorous avocado to be probably six feet tall after three years. Oh, wow. Okay. Get some of the uh, some of the good liquid fertilizer, like you put on your house plants, has to grow, or maybe one of the Fox Farm products. Uh, the avocado will love that, but... Uh, uh, it, it ought to be bigger than that by now. Where do I get has to grow? Any good nursery. Probably even get it at the grocery store, but I know the nur- all okay. your nurseries around will have it. Okay. Uh, one more question. On my Orient pear tree last year, the leaves turned black. I mean black. Mm-hmm. And I think you said something about cross-pollination. Somebody may have cut down a tree or something. No, no. Um, black on uh, leaves is is a disease. It's called bacterial fire blight. Now, um, it it could be if the rootstock has grown out. You know, you could in effect have something different than Orient. But uh, uh, one thing about pear trees, we don't prune pears heavily and we don't fertilize pears heavily because that that does encourages encourage this uh, bacterial fire blight disease. But uh, you'll find leaves turn brown. Even some of the bark can turn brown. Uh, has that happened again this year, or was that just last year? It was just last year. Uh, two years before that we lived here, it just uh-huh. happened last year. Okay. How does it look uh, this summer? Uh, I, I've got a lot of green leaves. I've still got some black ones up at the top hanging yeah. there that, that are dead, but I was just then wanting to know if I was going to get pears. Um, if you were going to get pears, you, you would see the pears by now. Now, pear trees need to be cross-pollinated. If yours is the only pear tree around, you're never going to get much of a pear crop. Now, Orient is a good variety for this area, but, uh, you may want to think about, you know, planting, you know, a second tree at some point, uh, if you don't get much fruit. Did you have flowers this spring? No. Okay. It just, ha- just happened this year. Okay. Uh, then, you know, let's see how it blooms next spring. Do give it some fall fertilizer. Um, you know, in fact, I'd feed it now. I'd probably feed it again about January. Let's see how you do on getting flowers, and then we'll see how much cross-pollination we get. You'll know if my friend Alton Grimm, one of the best nurserymen I've ever known, told me that if there's another pear tree within a quarter of a mile, that's usually enough to get cross-pollination. So at this point, we're just going to have to wait till spring and see. But uh, fertilize only with organic fertilizers and except to cut some dead wood out or to take off anything that might be sprouting off the rootstock, pretty much put the pruning shears away because pruning on pear trees really makes them more susceptible to disease. So we rarely, if ever, do any pruning on a pear tree. Okay, all right. 
All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your information. Well, it's my pleasure, Linda. Thank you very much. And um, let's go ahead and talk to Valerie. Good morning, Valerie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I have a key lime in a pot. It's been there about two years. I wanted to know if I should wait till the spring to put it in the ground or get your recommendation on that. Well, you know, the the limes are the most cold sensitive of all fruit trees. Uh, having said that, they're also one of the most delicious. One of my favorite citrus is those little Mexican lime or key lime, whichever name yeah. you apply to it. Um, it's going to be easier to protect this winter in the pot, so... I probably would do as you suggest. I would leave it uh, in the pot, bring it inside when you have to this winter, plant it out as soon as we're past the danger of freezing weather. That'll give it the maximum amount of time to get established and uh, won't mean you won't have to cover it if we get real cold, but it does mean it will get through the cold winter much better. So yeah, let's leave it in the pot for now, but about next March or so, uh, have a good place to put out and get it planted in the ground. Perfect. Okay. And I have a lemon tree. It has black on the leaves. Is that the same mm-hmm. thing that, like, what can I put on that? It's okay. a Myers that totally, Yeah, the, it's totally different problem on lemon trees. And the black is not actually a part of the leaf. You have had some insects on there, either aphids or scale. These insects produce a sugary secretion and then black mold grows on that secretion so uh, that black can actually be washed off you may actually have to take your thumb forefinger and rub it a little bit but the black will come off but i'd look carefully and if you find any sign of uh of either scale or aphids on there spinosad soap is the thing i usually use because it's very safe and yet it's very very effective but uh, at some point, you've had an insect issue on that tree, and if it's still there, you need to get it taken care of. That black will eventually just wash off. So use spinosad soap for now? That's what I would use on it. I certainly would. You can buy it in a little sprayer already just to go out and spray, or you can buy it as a concentrate if you have a lot of spraying to do. Okay, and when is a good time to plant strawberries? I've struck out twice already with that so typically october november uh late october into november are the best time to plant your strawberries and is that a good time also to put compost on the ground um, um, for fall when yeah, it's it's a great time <laughs> to put the right compost time. out. Okay. Yeah, it's the only time we don't put out compost is when it's super hot, uh, because you can get some yellowing because of the ammonia gas that it produces. But by October, November, it'd be a perfect time to put compost out. Okay, and one more question: the brown patch. I've had it the last two years. I wanted to try to get ahead of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Do I put corn gluten meal or corn meal? I forgot which corn meal. Cornmeal. Cornmeal is much less expensive. You can either, you know, put the dry cornmeal out or you can uh, soak the cornmeal in water and then apply that liquid as a spray, whichever is more convenient for you. I would be, as soon as we start having those first nights down in the 40s or 50s, brown patches is is a disease of uh, warm days and cool nights. Typically around the 1st of October would be the time I'd put out your cornmeal preventatively. Perfect. Okay, thank you so much. That's all the questions I have. Thank you. Well, when you think of more, you know where to find me. I (laughs) will. Thank you. Look forward to it. Goodbye. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
But if you've got a son Take him fishing Take him fishing Be his buddy while he's young Time goes by so swiftly Don't blow it all again Take him fishing Take him fishing If you want him for your friend That is a good song, Don. <laughs> Don was telling me off air that he had a had a new fishing song for us, and yeah, I'd say that one's definitely a keeper. That's uh that's that's a good song. Mr. Don Cooper Stevens, my engineer, uh we saved the last break of our of our Saturday shows when John's Don's doing the engineering, and I always think a fishing song in there because that's what we always wish we had a little bit more time to do. We'll finish up the gardening with uh, Christy and Glenn. Doctor Kirby sitting right next to me, so it's almost time for the pet show. But we've got time to talk gardening a little bit more. Good morning, Christy. Hey, Bob. Um, when I'm putting dry organic fertilizer down, do I need to move them all out away and put it on the soil? Not at, on top. Not at okay. all. Not at all. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I always, when in doubt, look to what nature would do. Nature doesn't move the mulch out of the way. Nature just keeps dumping more and more and more on top of it. It gradually decomposes from the ground up, and those uh, nutrients that come in, you know, from many different sources, they, they're on the surface. Now, granted, if you move the mulch out of the way, put the mulch back on top of it, the plants might get the benefit of it a little more quickly, but it's a lot more work. It is totally unnecessary, and uh, no, I don't ever move the mulch out of the way. I just fertilize on top of it, and that goes even if you have... Uh, you know, a uh, like a decayed granite or lava sand or something like that. It's not just for organic mulches, but still putting it on the surface is going to be all you need to do. Wonderful. Now, when I'm planting a new plant, do I put some in the bottom of the hole and on top, or what's best? I like to put a little bit of it in the bottom of the hole. Now, of course, you can only do that, uh, you know, with organic fertilizers. And you never put compost, you never put mulch or things down in the hole because those things are generating carbon dioxide as they decompose. And uh, the roots want oxygen. They don't want carbon dioxide. But a little bit of fertilizer, I think, is a very good thing. It's not mandatory, but I will just throw a handful at the bottom of the hole then when I finish planting, I'll put a little more on top and uh, never put mulch up against, right up against the trunk. But, uh, you know, even the day you plant, it's a great idea to go ahead and mulch around. Okay, so no mulch even up next to shrub um, or plant. No, and we're talking, all you need is air circulation. Everybody says, well, do I leave it at two inches or six inches or a foot or two? You leave it far enough out that you've got good air circulation around the trunk because what you're trying to do is just keep that lower part of the trunk, keep that bark from staying too wet. If it stays too wet, no air circulation, it literally rots from the outside in. So uh, mulch goes over the root zone, not up against the trunk, and uh, it's as simple as that. Just as long as you've got enough room around the, the shrub, woody shrub, tree. Only exceptions are palm trees and sagos. Those are, and well, all cycads, but those have a totally different trunk structure, and if they get buried, it doesn't seem to bother them at all. 
If you're ever interested and you're by some time, I'll draw you a little diagram and show you exactly how that works. But without a without a blackboard to draw on, and you can't very well draw on the radio, uh, uh, then then you just have to take it for fact that woody trees are very definitely different from cycads and from palms. And uh, woody trees, no mulch up against the trunk. Cycads and palms, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Last question. Um, I have some Chinese fringe shrubs. And they've gotten very leggy. Is there anything I can do to make them fill out near the bottom? Like Are they that? in full sun? Mm, no, probably half. Okay. They're by the house. Yeah, that's why they're a little leggy. Uh, you can cut them back to thicken them up a little bit, but unless they, you know, they're only going to get thicker if they get more light. So you want to cut them back some, you can, but don't do it now. Those uh, plants, believe it or not, are pretty much already setting their flower buds for next spring. And if you prune them this time of year, you won't get to enjoy the pink flowers next spring. So best time to prune them is just as they finish their flowering in the spring. Try not to take off more than half the foliage, more than 50% of the foliage at any one time. Just cut them back to the point you would like them to branch. And they will thicken up to a point, but uh, they're never going to be as thick as they would be if they were out in full sun. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning, Christy. I appreciate it. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, finish it up with Glenn today. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Uh, Good morning. I was at the Bitters Road brush dump, and I noticed they had huge mounds of free compost. Okay. And I was wondering, is that good compost to be able to put on the ground? On the well, earth? you know, the difference in mulch and compost is how far broken down it is. Typically, what they offer at the brush dump is not really far enough broken down that I would call it a real top quality compost. But, you know, if uh, if business has been slow enough for them, I, if, if it no longer looks like leaves and twigs and pieces of wood, then it's probably broken down far enough to be compost. And there's no such thing as bad compost. Some compost is better than others. The main thing you're getting out of compost is the microbial life that it brings in. And the microbes, the more different things go into making compost, the greater the diversity of microbial life and really, therefore, the better the compost is. So what they're offering out at the brush dump is just uh, basically organic uh, leaves, twigs, grass, things like that. And it's, it's not bad compost at all. You compare that to a really good compost that you're getting from a nursery or a material yard, their compost was made from you know 20 different sources it might be anything from old ice cream to uh you know stuff that comes out of a feed lot to uh manures of various sorts to uh, things come out of slaughterhouses the more different things that go into making the compost the more diverse your microbial life will be and therefore the better the compost will be so no such thing as bad compost and there as long as it's broken down to the point that it doesn't really look like twigs and pieces of bark that'd be fine to put on your grass but uh, I, it doesn't take the place of fertilizer. I understand. But they had compost, and they had the uh, rough compost, and then they had the fine compost. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, they would call uh, it screened compost. Yeah, right. I, yeah, I mean, it, it looked well broke down, nice dark color, uh, everything. I mean, it was it wasn't sticks and leaves. I mean, it was it was broke down quite a bit. Uh, 
And if it's free, I get as much out of it as you can. Don't put it on over half an inch thick or so. But it sounds like a good deal. I didn't know they had anything. They must have. They must either have had a lot of mulch out there that had a chance to break down a bit. But uh, no, that sounds like a good product. Uh, would not be. Would not have the diversity of microbial life as say a product that came from Stone and Soil Depot or somewhere like that. But nothing at all wrong with it. And sounds like the price is very good. Thank you for your time, sir. That's all my questions.